Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So hello, my name is Ashley, Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Judge Kimberly Baker Gilmet. She is a teacher, leader, and advocate, along with being a judge. After law school at USC, she worked as a disability rights attorney, then at the California State Attorney General's Office. Her work also includes the inaugural uh, director of Office of Reentry for the City of Los Angeles by Mayor Eric Garcetti. She joins us today to talk about her stunning memoir, Black Prep, Lessons of a Perpetual Outsider. Kimberly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Ashley. And so one question that we ask all of our authors and guests who join us is, what is your definition of feminism? My definition of feminism would be showing up as your authentic self every day, day in and day out, and walking in your purpose. And that's different for different people. Uh, And so I think it's extremely important not to feel as though you have to change who you are to fit into boxes or expectations of others. You need to come to every situation with your whole self and be authentic and true to who you are. And in that, you will be representing not only yourself, but women very, very well. Thank you. And please tell us what Black Prep is about. Absolutely. My pleasure. Black Prep, as you indicated, is a memoir, and it is essentially my story as a brown young lady from South Los Angeles uh, who was thrust into an environment that was extremely unfamiliar to me when I started a very elite private school at the age of 12. And I found myself trying to navigate two worlds, the world of my family and my neighborhood and my community, and this new world of elitism and privilege. And for a time, I really had some difficulty in finding my footing and figuring out who I was. And I thought, do I need to change myself to be successful here? Do I need to leave behind parts of me to be successful in this new space? And what I came to learn through family and lessons and friends and supporters and just doing some internal reflection was no, absolutely not. I did not need to change myself. And it was all of those things about me, my culture, my heritage, my family, our struggles, who I was in my skin that made me special and made me the asset to my new uh, environment. And so I wrote the book to support other young people who find themselves in elite spaces so that they understand they don't have to change who they are to be successful. And I tell the story through some stories that are funny, some that are make you cry and Hopefully it resonates with folks. Yes. My initial interest in reading the book was thinking about Amanda Gorman, who attended private school, went on to Harvard University, but also grew up in um, the South Central LA area. So thinking about where she grew up and where she gained her foundation and where that led her to private school and to an Ivy League school, and of course, to where she is now as, um, 
you know, she gave the inaugural poem and everything that she's been able to gain from there. But that was because of her foundation of where she grew up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And please tell us what you mean by a perpetual outsider. I think you touched upon it, but I would like to hear more about that. Absolutely. For me, perpetual outsider essentially was used to capture that no matter what world I found myself in or continue to find myself in, I don't feel as though I am the cookie cutter expectation of what a successful person in that environment looks like. And so when I was in my neighborhood growing up and I grew up between mid-city LA and, and South LA Watts, I um, felt like you know people were telling me, you're not black enough, you're not down enough, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling like an outsider in that environment. And then when I'm in my elite private school environment, oh, you're not privileged enough. You're not connected enough. You're not thin enough. You have the wrong skin color. So I'm feeling like an outsider in that environment. And I essentially use that subtitle to capture that I didn't fit in to what folks expected folks from these spaces to look like, but yet and still, I was able to be successful and we all can. And I'll say even in my, 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 professional environment now, I am certainly not the cookie cutter expectation of what a judge looks like. And I am 100% good with that. Yes. Yes. It prepares you for just all the different places that you have inevitably been and where you will continue to go. Exactly. Yes. So I want to talk about um, the 210 bus. I know that bus. <laughs> I I see it um, quite often. Yes. Um, I may have read wrote that bus as well. Um, thinking about the labyrinth of your lineage, you mm. you've written about your you have loved ones from Arkansas, and of course, growing up in Los Angeles. What does the two ten bus mean to you, particularly where it's taken you and? how your family has come to get you to where you are? Oh, I love that question. It's a tremendous question. Uh, Absolutely. The 210 bus is a metaphor for my journey, not just in the book, but I would say in my life. And I love how you brought up my family. I indeed have family from Arkansas. My dad's family is from Arkansas. My dad came here when he was 12 with his brothers and sisters in a station wagon and drove cross country during the Jim Crow era because my aunt believed there was opportunity here that would help them to live a better life. And so my family on both sides, my my mom's side, they were from Virginia and uh, Texas, uh, were always seeking and wanting more. And I felt as though I had this support and almost this bolstering by both sides of my family to want more. And they brought me into an environment where I had so much more opportunity than they did. Yet and still, it was my responsibility to take myself to that next level. And so the 210 bus was essentially my my passage, my, my own personal journey to a different space. And just as my family from Arkansas had come uh, in in the Western migration to come to California for a different life, for different opportunities, 
um, even though I was staying in the same locality of Los Angeles, I was going into a different world seeking new opportunities. And so riding the 210 bus down Crenshaw every day, which uh, for us native Angelinos, we know at least back in my day, it was called the RTD, which we often refer to as a rough, tough and dangerous, uh, which was, about, it was actually the rapid transit district, but because there was a lot going on on that bus. Mm-hmm. And so you really had to have your wits about you. There were different um, conflicts between people. People were you know, trying to keep themselves safe from whatever someone was trying to do. Uh, there were so many different elements and, and people that you had to be aware of. So I'm coming from getting on that bus by my home and then riding north to uh, Hancock Park, which was a very, very different elite space. And uh, having to tra- traverse this terrain daily uh, to attempt to access these opportunities, which unfortunately in my neighborhood uh, school were not available to me. Mm-hmm. And so there is so much parallel between my my family and and how I lived and grew up and how I continue to live and not just my immediate family, my parents, but certainly my great grandparents and, and so many more ancestors that I will never know, but who I'm so grateful to. Yes, I appreciate when you talk about in the in your memoir about when you're in on the 210 bus, there's a certain part where it is rough, tough, and, mm-hmm. and dangerous. Yeah. But then there's this certain part where you're getting to the more affluent piece and you're kind of becoming the target. You're becoming the person that people have to watch out for. Yes. And I know that that, mm-hmm. dif- that differential between the, okay, I have to watch out for myself Mm -hmm. and then I have to watch out for myself in a different place. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I love that you picked up on that. And um, it's interesting because I was sharing with my daughters about um, an experience I had when um, I had just graduated from law school and your whole life, you're told, you know, try your best, apply yourself do everything you can to be successful. And I have always tried to do that and always wanting to make my family proud. But I think there was this belief in my mind that once I became a lawyer, people would see me differently. Mm -hmm. And to an extent people have, but the first thing people see is how you show up physically in the world and people have bias. And so I remember I had just finished law school and I decided I was going to go shopping because I wanted to get a dress for my party, for my graduation party. And I went to this uh, store in um, a very prominent mall. It's in a nice part of the city. And um, I went in and I was looking for my dress and I tried all these dresses on and none of them worked for me. I said, oh, you know, I'm just going to go somewhere else. So I, I just left all the dresses in the fitting room and I walked out and the clerk stopped me and said, oh, I know you stole one of those dresses. And I said, excuse me. And the first thing that came to mind was, does this woman know that I just completed law school? How could she think this? But I had to check myself. No, she sees you as a black woman. That's what she sees. And so uh, certainly, certainly there is this balance that we have to strike internally in terms of seeing ourselves for who we really are and not internalizing other people's views of us. And you're right. 
There are spaces where you have to make sure you're not going to be victimized physically in terms of crime or or whatever might come to pass. But then there are spaces where you have to make sure you're not going to be victimized emotionally or you're not going to be mistreated because of folks' biases. And, And so you're always having to do this dance and this shift in terms of where you are and making sure, which is what I want people to hear and understand through the book, not to internalize other people's perceptions of you. It's back, y'all. The FBC Readathon is back for its third season, and honestly, it's better than ever. We've got tons of surprises in store for you. Join us the weekend of April 22nd through 24th for a low-stakes, high-reward readathon, the perfect excuse to set aside a few hours to power through your TBR. It's completely free, a ton of fun, and we have over 80 books and counting that we'll be giving away. All you got to do is sign up at feministbookclub.com slash readathon, and the link is in the show notes. Well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I, I, I want to talk with you about how was writing about your childhood? There was a particular story that you mentioned, and it, 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 to me, it was quite heartbreaking um, in your preschool mm-hmm. and what that sort of that avalanche that came through with the teacher and your family and yourself. Mm-hmm. You write a great deal about your childhood. So how was that? for you reflecting on your childhood? Thank you for that question. It's interesting because I was asked uh, by one of the readers, was this therapeutic for you to write? And absolutely it was because it took me back to a time and space when I was younger, but my lens was a lot more narrow. And so to be able to revisit these times and experiences as an adult, as a professional, as a mother, as a wife, I'm able to bring those perspectives into these experiences that I had as a child. And so certainly in that experience you're talking about when I was four years old, I knew the feelings I had in those moments about the, the, the punitive measures taken by the teacher were, were unjust. I knew that. I knew I was angry, but I didn't quite understand all of how those parts of the other backdrop of my life influenced how I participated in that event and what I did um, in being rude to my grandma. I don't want to give it away for those who haven't read it, but uh, after that event. And so it was absolutely therapeutic for me to write it, to see it from the perspective as an adult and as a parent. And um, also it was I think healing in many ways too, because when you, as a child, we're calibrated to think of our parents as givers, uh, protectors, providers, there for us. We are focused on our self-preservation. We don't so much think about our parents as humans, as people who hurt, as people who need support. I think certainly I didn't see my grandparents that way. And they were tremendous supporters of, of my mom and of my sister and I. And so writing this from my perspective then, but through my lens now, really helped me, I think, to have more understanding and empathy uh, for the, my loved ones, for my elders. And it was very healing. 
Wonderful. Yes, you you share a great deal of just about what you've been through in your childhood, and it reflects on the person that you are now. And I think many people want to always speak to their childhood self, but I think as long as you're doing the best that you can now, you are reflecting on the child, you you as a child and the person that you wanted to become or the person that you needed. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So what is your reflection on being a Black girl preparing for your outstanding education? You talked about being the perfect daughter. You're Mm -hmm. also the oldest child, which provides a whole other uh, perspective and a responsibility. So what did you, how is that experience reflecting on your education, particularly from where you came from? Well. I will say that as the oldest, I certainly felt a sense of responsibility to pave the way. And I was very mindful of that from very young. And I understood that I was going before my sister. And if my performance was going to potentially impact her opportunities as well. So I was very mindful of that. I think that I was very fortunate that my mother was a lifelong educator. My father was as well. Uh, my teachers, for the most part, from my public schools that I attended in elementary school, the ones that really taught me for the majority of the time in elementary school were tremendous. They gave me the best of what they could. And so I had this love for education very, very, very young. And also this thirst for knowledge and understanding that knowledge was power very, very young. And so I almost approached going to my elite private school and then going on later to Stanford and then law school after that. I almost approached it as you're not going to withhold this good thing from me. I almost felt as if it was I I think I felt as if it was a civil rights issue uh, for me not to be able to access certain opportunities. So there's a part in the book. I'm not going to speak too much about it, but where my father and I, uh, my father had a different view of education. And I felt angry because I felt like if I have an opportunity to access this, how can anyone want to withhold that from me? And so I think my view in general, from even when I was in sixth grade to when I was going to college and going to law school has always been, I believe that I should have the right and I believe anyone should have the right to access the best that is available to them. And so that has been my process uh, the whole time and it continues to be. And I, part of the book was just also the messaging of, we reject anyone saying that because of these outside features or these various superficial conditions that we can't access the best available to us. And so I think that's my view of education. That's how I pursue it. That's how I pursue it for our, our, my children. And um, I think everyone has the right to access the best of what is available to them. And that looks different for different people. But whatever it is you believe is there for you and you think that you need, you have the right and the ability to access it, you should have the ability and the support in do, to do so. Amazing. Thank you. Is there a word or affirmation that you hold on to? 
Wow. I love that question. I will say I am a person of faith. So for me, uh, it's going to be grounded in that, in, 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 in the Bible. I will just be direct about that for me. One of my favorite quotes, however, uh, is by Eleanor Roosevelt, and it is, do not let perfect be the enemy of the good. And um, essentially, I love it because I feel like particularly as women, we hold ourselves to very high standards. We are exacting and unforgiving when we don't do things perfectly. And when we do that, we almost paralyze ourselves and prevent the action and achievement that we could accomplish if we would just move forward. And so I love that quote because it reminds me, I do not have to be perfect and I can execute this activity, this event, uh, achieve this goal without being perfect and do a lot of good. And so I love it because it challenges us to stop being overly critical of ourselves and to say, what is the goal? What is the end game? I'm going to work to achieve it. And yes, I might have missteps along the way, but I'm going to forgive myself for those. And I'm going to keep forging ahead and pressing on. And so I, it's been, it's something I, I say to myself at least twice a week at minimum. And just think about if you didn't pursue what you eventually inevitably have achieved, if you had just said, okay, I'm just going to go to this score, I'm just going to do this project, or I'm, I'm, you know, you didn't really apply what you know is your best, where you would have ended up, and you wouldn't have um, pursued what you knew was best for you, because you know that you're what is your best and what you're able to achieve. So I appreciate that quote as well. Well, thank you. And I hope you hear it for you because honestly, I think in general, women uh, are constantly being bombarded by these images of what is perfect or what should be promoted and who deserves to be elevated. And it's really a lot of lies um, and it is by design and it's meant to silence our voice and to cause us to second guess ourselves. Because if we're second guessing ourselves, we're self-selecting out of opportunity. Folks don't even have to oppress us uh, directly because we're choosing to not even try because of uh, the belief of the lie. So it is very important that we believe and understand our innate value and trust ourselves and know if there's something in your heart that you want to do that you will be able to do it. And even if you make a mistake, that is okay because you're gonna learn from it, you're gonna grow from it and all of the good you're gonna do is gonna change and improve the lives of many people and you're gonna inspire somebody else. Thinking about Black Prep, I also want to talk with you about President Biden's nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. What does her nomination mean to you? And what, what, what does her nomination mean for the scope of your story in the book? Thank you for that question. I will say Justice Brown, uh, and I'm going to call her that now because <laughs> we're going to believe that she is going to be confirmed, is such an inspiration because she, from, from how she shows up, Physically, you know, her hair to how she precarious herself to her tremendous career. 
she shows that you can be who you are unapologetically and achieve the highest heights. And so that has been really an inspiration to me. And it's affirming because that tends to be how I try to live my life. And when you live your life that way, you get pushback because people sometimes feel uncomfortable with it. And they say, well, that's not how we've always done it. Or that's not what a judge looks like. Or that's not what an attorney looks like. That's not what the a person who goes to this school looks like. Well, yes, that is true. Historically, they have not looked like us, but times need to change. There's a reason why people don't look like us in certain spaces. It's because of very specific and directed and intentional exclusion. And so if we aren't brave enough and if we don't have the courage to say, I'm willing to go into this space, even though no one in it looks like me, then there will never be anyone in the space that looks like us. And so I am so inspired by her, her willingness to go into this institution, which has historically excluded women, particularly women of color, never had a Black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court ever. And to say, I'm willing to be the first, I'm willing to break down this door. And I understand with that, it's going to likely come with some challenges and some difficult experiences, but I'm up for it. So I'm, I'm very appreciative for her trailblazing and for her courage. Yes. And as we conclude this conversation, what organizations would you like to amplify? Mm, I love that question. Well, I am a firm believer in community. I will say in my job currently, I don't get to have as much direct access to community in the way I used to um, before I was on the bench, but I have seen the strength of community-based organizations and what they do to really change people's lives and stand in the gap and help people when they are down, when their families can't necessarily help them or when loved ones are in trouble and they support the families. And so I, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a specific organization, but I will say that any group of people that is working to affirm and, and, and support and love on other humans and show them mercy and to show them empathy are, are organizations that need to be amplified and need to be elevated. And so often we see that in our churches, we see that in community-based organizations that do reentry work. We see that often in some of our, our schools. Schools are often as near and as supportive of students as family. And so um, I would always be an, a, an ardent supporter of any group or organization that's doing that type of work. Thank you, Kimberly, for Thank joining you. us today. To our listeners, Black Prep, I believe, is a must read just for the trajectory of reflecting on your childhood and to where you can go and where you will go and where you are. So thank you for joining us today and thankful for your responses and your time. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.